Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the pod. Um, sorry I missed a day yesterday, I had a bit of a skip day, unintended, but hey, I don't think anyone even really noticed. Um, we left off with Chapter 2, there was no discussion prompts, there was no discussion. No one cares about this book, so let us keep reading Chapter 3. Our advancements are broken or delayed by unexpected returnings to our beginnings, and my story is that a young man whom I had known at Jules's asked me to visit him for the hunting season, and that I met a man at his house who had a horse running at Croydon, but was without a jockey. So it was natural to me to propose myself and rely on Joseph Appleby's promptitude to send me my father's racing breeches and boots, which he did, and the farce was gone through of taking them down to Croydon, though the owner had written saying that he intended, or half intended, to scratch the horse, his warning serving no purpose for, we are all mummers, and life being but a mumming, it was pleasant to think of myself taking all the jumps, the water jump especially in front of the stand, but to do this it was necessary to go down prepared, the breeches and boots, in a brown paper parcel under my arm, the parcel helping me to realise myself as a steeplechase jockey, no doubt that with some luck I should have got the horse round the course as well as another. But the owner, having scratched the horse, and the day being wet, and the ring a couple of inches deep in mud, the result of that Croydon meeting was for me a severe cold that prevented me from taking my driving lesson from Ward, one of the great coachmen of at the time, a lesson that I sorely needed, for I had engaged to drive a coach down to Epsom. All the same, on our four, on four lessons, this feat was accomplished. The horses meeting with no serious accident. And encouraged by my luck, a few weeks afterwards, the same party was invited by me to a great gala dinner at Richmond. Richmond. Uh, and while the coach was being led over several hillocks through the furze bushes, on the dusty road, for in the darkness we had wandered into Wandsworth Common, one of my guests said to me, You mustn't think of giving up driving, your luck will never desert you. But four horses galloping on Wandsworth Common in the middle of the night, Margaret Gilray whispered to her cousin Sally Giles, I wish we were safely at home. These excursions passed the summer away, and in August, Sally and Margaret were bidden goodbye. Belfort's brother, who was going to be married and wished to make a splash before doing so, had hired a lodge in Rossshire. He had invited his brother, and his brother had been allowed to invite me. A great event this was, and hours were spent at the tailors considering different patterns. At the hosiers, turning over scarves, neckties and shirts of many descriptions, frilled and plain. And when my mother said that I could not have both a dressing case costing £50 and a pair of guns... I decided to have the dressing case and to send to Moore Hall for my father's muzzle loaders, and though forty years have gone by, I can still smile at the astonishment that the guns inspired in the Ross Shire shooting lodge, and when it was noticed that the locks were noiseless, Captain H, who had been told off as my companion on the morrow, was soon interested in them, and spent most of the evening with a toothbrush trying to clean them, succeeding at last in producing a faint clicking, but not enough to convince him that he would be safe while shooting with me. It were better, he thought, to lend me one of his guns, and the breech loader, the first that I held in my hands, was held fairly straight, and my bag was numerous for a boy of my appearance and conversation. 
Captain H, had begun to feel that if by chance my bag were the bigger, he would be wickedly chaffed, and this misfortune might have happened to him if the boots that had been had won my fancy in the Sloane Street shop had not begun to break up, the pretty clasps and buckles being unable to resist the tough Rosher heather. I can't think how you came ever by such boots. Where did you get them? They are as wonderful as your guns. How did you contrive to hit off the extraordinary? And I told him that it was not until the last moment between six and seven in the evening that I remembered I had forgotten to order any shooting boots. My feet, you see, being as small as a woman's, the ready-made shooting boots in the Brompton Road were too large for me. All the shops were shutting. I was getting frantic when I saw a line of boots in a shop window in Sloane Street marked Ladies' Boots for the Highlands. They'll fit me, I said to myself. You see, they do, only... I shall have to take you round tomorrow to the local cobbler. The noiseless locks, the ladies' boots, and the admission that I was always in love supplied the Rothschild shooting lodge with matter for humorous conversation, and as I sat before my fire in Eli Place, I heard my nickname, Mr. Perpetual. To be ridiculous has always been ma petit lux. But can anyone be said to be ridiculous if he knows that he is ridiculous? Not very well. It is the pompous that are truly ridiculous. A random thought carried me out of Eli Place across the years of Lodge Road, and I can see myself and the company in the room and round table on which are beef and salad, Cheshire cheese and beer, the supper provided by the fair cousins. Canaries are shrilling in their cages, and my bow window is hung with red rep curtains, and the sofa too is rep. There is wax fruit on the sideboard, and Sally and Margaret are where the tight, bum-revealing dresses that succeeded the pious crinoline. <clears throat> Side whiskers have not disappeared altogether. Belford and myself, Humphreys and Norton, two cavalry officers, are shaved only to mid-cheek. Incident after incident rises up and floats away like cigarette smoke. One incident retaining my attention a little longer than the others. The evening that Belford, you refused to smoke one of my cigars, saying that he preferred to smoke one of his own manillas. He lighted one and it was just beginning to draw when impertinently I tore it out of his teeth and flung it into the fire. A joke it had seemed to me, but he rushed to the poker and would have braided me with it if I had not slipped round the table and seized Colville's sword and unsheathing it in a moment, warded off the blow aimed at my head, and seeing another coming, it occurred to me that the best way to save myself would be to bun, be to run Belford through, and he would have received a thrust that might have done for him if one of the cavalry officers had not armed himself with a chair. The sword sank into the upholstery, and by the time Belford had recovered his temper, and a few minutes after he was smoking one of my cigars in token of reconciliation, one of the cavalry officers asleep on the sofa is another memory that time has not rubbed away, and Margaret coming to sit on my knees, perhaps because she had been warned not to inflame Mr. Perpetual. Her dressmaker had brought home a beautiful blue tea gown that evening. She was wearing it for the first time, and it folds of corded silk floated it over my knees. The very weight and shape of her I remembered, and how inquietude, where whether the officer was shamming sleep or was asleep, the tea gown had seemed to me the very painting robe that I needed, for art was never altogether out of my mind, and I had been thinking for some time of satin, sitting in the shady sadness of a veil as a subject for a picture, 
that my poor dead Oliver would have liked to paint. I would have been of no avail. It would have been of, to no, of no avail to offer it to Jim Brown, for he could not draw for nature. A few moments, months later, I discovered another which he would have carried out if he had lived, the witch of Atlas called Hermaphroditus, and I could see the wings catching the faint airs bearing the boat up the shadowy stream and the austral waters beyond the fabulous Thamadonkona. Without, however, being able to arrange the figures so that they filled the canvas, the sinuous back of the witch, her arms upon the helm, looking up at Hermaphroditus. And one day, <clears throat> excuse me, Jim Brown was implored to say, what was wrong with the composition? Give me your palette and go upstairs and dress yourself. Take off that ridiculous garment, he added, thereby humiliating me for Margaret Gilroy's tea gown had seemed an excellent painting robe, an advance on the smock which Jim wore in his own studio, but it would be Henceforth discarded, for Jim was now my mentor, my hero, my boon companion. He was my pride to be seen in Piccadilly with this fine Victorian gentleman whom I recall best on a wintry day. He never wore an overcoat, but buttoned his braided coat tightly about him and swung a big stick. Long flaxen locks fell thick over the collar, and his peg tops blew about in the wind. He was known to everybody as Piccadilly, Jim or Piccadilly Brown. I've forgotten which. We met everybody between Hyde Park Corner and St. James's Street, and Jim saluted his acquaintance with a how are you, and never a how do you do. He very rarely stopped to speak to any, but strode on quickly, mentioning the name of the passerby, and I could but try to fix in my memory the appearance of the notable, uh, regretting that Jim did not stop, that I had not been introduced. He liked to quiz me, and sometimes there was plenty of reason for mockery, and sometimes there was none. But in either case, he quizzed me, turning some simple phrase into ridicule, as when I asked him if there was anything foolish in what I had said, and to my surprise he answered no. Then why had he been laughing at me all this while? And I listened to Jim again, for he was now asking out of politeness, he always decided these questions, whether it would it be more amusing to dine at the St. James's or at the Kettner's or at the Café de la Regents? It did not matter which. In whichever he might choose, I could learn his taste in food, and my hope was that with practice I might acquire it. His taste in everything seemed essential, especially in women, and to make myself more perfectly acquainted with it, I drew his attention to the ladies dining at the distant tables, never daring, however, to hazard an opinion unless one seemed to realise all the ideals of beauty set forth in his pictures, and if he, des if he deigned to approve of any woman's face and figure at Cremorne Gardens or in the Argyle Rooms, I used to mark her down for future study. My mistakes were numerous, and as I, I was ashamed if he caught me talking to a woman whom he did not admire, and very proud of my choice met his approval, as it happened to do one day in the park, I'd stopped to speak to Kitty Carrow, letting his walk on in letting his walk on in front, and on overtaking him halfway down the pathway, he said, Yes, indeed, a very pretty woman. You were in luck, George, when you picked her up. Jim's satellite, I was, but giving, given to wandering out of my orbit, there were other companions whom Jim looked up contemptuously, the Maitlands, and Jim's contempt was shared by my gaunt Irish servant, William Mullow, in the 
who used to enrage me when he came into the drawing room with his sore Mr. Doherty, Doherty Maitland. He is called to see you. It was quite true that Sydenham presented a somewhat neglected appearance, but however Justice just Williams' criticism might be, he could not be allowed to speak to me of my friends with contempt. This Durnany savage must be sent back to Moor Hall, I said, but a moment's indignation does not add much to my story. I must tell how I made Sydenham's acquaintance. When we arrived from Mayo, we had gone to live in Thurlow Square in the house of a very genteel lady who did not let lodgings, but who might be persuaded, so the house agent had said, to let us have her drawing room, floor, and some bedrooms for five or six guineas a week. She often asked me into her parlour and talked to me about her connections and the neighbourhood, and seeing I was at a loose end without companions, Inspired by some connection of ideas, she said one day she would introduce me to the Maitland boys, the son of a retired stipendiary magistrate from Athlone. The mother of a, was a wonderful pianist. The boys were all clever. The three younger sons had a room to themselves at the bottom of the house where they painted scenery, wrote verses and composed music. William and Dick, the two eldest brothers, had taken the Lyceum Theatre and were going to produce Chilperic, a comic opera by Hervé. She tapped at the window and Sydenham came in and his news was that a letter had arrived that morning from Herve. He was coming over to play the title role himself. Everything is relative. And at that moment of my life, it was very wonderful for me to go to the Matlin's house and to hear the scores of Chilperic played by Sydenham and his mother. We received boxes and stalls, from the Maitlands, and after a run of nearly six months, Chilprick was taken off to make way for the composer's latter opera, Le Petit Fou. But it did not please as much as it, its predecessor, and the theatre had to be closed. Dick had, however, managed to escape bankruptcy. Half a success guarantees that another door shall be opened to a retiring manager, and in the 70s, a few months after my father's death, he brought over the entire company from Le Folies Dramatique to play in French. Chipiri, Leo Crive, de blah blah blah, and possibly Le Fetis He sent me seats whenever I asked him, and I used to sit in the stalls learning all the little choruses and couplets night after night, admiring Paula Marie a pretty and plump brunette who sang enchantingly as she tripped across the stage, and Blanche d'Antigny, a tall, fair woman who played the part of a young shepherd. She wore a white sheepskin about her loins and looked as if she had walked out of Jim's pictures. I learned from Dick that she was a great Lito love, sharing the kingdom of desire with Hortense Schneider and Leon Leblanc. It was well to sit in the stalls as Dick's guest. Fuck, this is a long chapter. And it would have been wonderful to accompany him through the stage door on the stage and be introduced to the French actress to whom he spoke in French every night. But I could not speak French and I vowed to learn the language of these women who disappeared suddenly like the swallows, leaving me meditating what lives they lived in Paris until Dick's New theatrical venture, the translation of Offenbach's brigands, put them out of my head, for he had collected 
in the Globe Theatre, the most beautiful women in London, to form the core of the gendarmerie that always arrived an hour or too late to arrest the brigands. And one of the attractions of the piece was Mademoiselle de Anka, a beautiful Hungarian who sat off in Bach's little ditties bewitchingly, at a song that Arthur Sullivan had written for her looking back. Madame de Breau, a pretty brunette whom Dick had brought over for he loved her, was in the cast, and Nellie Bromley, who was loved by the Duke of Beaufort, was in it too. A lovelier garland was never wreathed, and there was no lovelier flower in it than Marie de Grey, who never kissed anyone except for her pleasure, and yet managed to live at the rate of three or four thousand a year. There was a woman who wore a green dress in the second act, Her nose was too large, but her thighs were beautiful, and there was a pretty tall, fair woman whom I ran across in Covent Garden on her way to the theatre, and whom I took to lunch. She would have loved me for my heart, had not been engaged elsewhere, but as usual I abandoned the prey for the shadow, and the shadow was the stately Annie Temple. Who dared not listen to my courtship for dread of the rage of her fierce cavalry officer, a stupid fellow, who snarled at me once so threateningly at the stage door that Annie must fain refuse me her photograph. Dot Robin's mother sold me one for a sovereign, and from it I painted my many portraits. Jim painted one from memory, mentioning again and again while he painted it that Annie was as tall as Mademoiselle Dianca whose acquaintance he had made on her arrival in London. Before the theatre opened, it was he who also introduced me to her, and he was glad now that I was able to get free seats at the Globe, and disappointed that Dick would not allow me to bring him behind the scenes. I should have liked to chaperone him, but it was a feather in my cap to leave him sitting in his box and skip away to the dressing room, and when I returned... He would lay our heads together trying to discover which was the handsomer woman, Annie Temple or Marie de Grey. Annie, in his opinion, was the finer woman, being a big, as big, in fact, as Alice Harford, and he confided to me then that there he used to meet Alice in a most romantic nook at the end of a little paved alley off of Fulham Road. He believed her to be in keeping and unfaithful only with him. All the same, she proposed one night at Cremorne to meet me at the Nook, and delighted with my success, I could not refrain from telling Jim all about it, just to make him down a peg, just to take him down a peg. But the result of this indiscretion was that Alice did not come to the Nook at the time appointed, and I walked down the paved alley meditating that once again I had missed the prey for the shadow, and as if my punishment were not enough, Jim continued to talk of her beauty, telling me that her legs were shapelier than Mademoiselle Dianca's, they did not go in at the knee, and this great beauty, or this great fault, formed the theme of many conversations in the studio in Prince's Gardens. Butcher's women did not go in at the knee, but Rubens did, and laying his his... Pallet aside, Jim would throw himself on the sofa and tell me for the hundredth time that day the only women worth loving were tall women with abundant bosom and flaxen hair, the only women that men with a sense of the beautiful could admire. 
But long before this, my guardian Lord Sligo wrote Jim a letter which brought him round to Alfred Place, and sitting on the edge of the table he read it to my mother, saying that if she agreed with Sligo's strictures, there would be nothing for him to do but refuse to see George any more. But if she did, didn't agree with Sligo, the best thing would be to write to him saying that she thought Sligo was mistaken, foreseeing that Lord Sligo would read my any such letter from her as please mind your own business my mother hesitated but i insisted feeling that jim's friendship was necessary to me all the same lord sligo's letter was not without avail it stimulated jim to moralize and when i called in the afternoon to ask him if he would come up to piccadilly to dine somewhere and go on to the argyle rooms he would read me a long lecture on the dangers of women Alright, that's it for tonight. That's as much as I can bear right now. I apologise for this shit book and I'll see you tomorrow.